be blessed. App and check it out that way. <clears throat> Excuse me. I was like really singing this morning. So I'm like, I've had like six cups of coffee this morning and singing and I'm reading from Romans chapter four. So this morning, I, I, I'm really trusting that today as we regroup, as we refocus, as we relaunch as a ministry, this, this isn't simply a season to regroup, to refocus and to relaunch as a church. My real hope and my deep desire is for you as an individual, for you as a family, that God would actually speak to you and maybe you need to regroup when it comes to your faith in Jesus. Maybe you need to refocus in your faith in Jesus and then maybe you need to relaunch in your faith in Jesus. And so that's kind of our hope and our desire as leaders here. And I just want to take a quick moment. I just want to thank Dorothy. She's sitting over there, so you can kind of thank her afterwards, too. So if you're not aware of one of our outreach ministries that we do here, we have a chaplaincy ministry where we welcome new Canadians to our city. And she's been doing an amazing job as a volunteer, heading up a lot of our volunteers who are part of this ministry, multiple events, partnering with the city of Ottawa at the Ottawa Public Library, a church partnering with the city. It happens. Okay, it does happen in a great relationship, and we've been welcoming people to our city, and it's just been amazing to see those relationships built. So thank you so much, Dorsey, for heading that up, and really appreciate that. Because again, all of us have this role to play in the kingdom work that God is doing. A time to regroup, to refocus, and to relaunch, because the last few years has kicked the snot out of all of us. <laughs> it's been challenging. It's been difficult. It's been annoying. It's been frustrating. There's been anger. There's been hurt. There's been disappointment. But God is still on his throne God still has a plan for your life. He still has a mission to accomplish through his bride. And we all play a part of that. And so as we're thinking of that, that whole theme of regroup, refocus, relaunch, I want you to think for a moment of, and just put the picture in your mind. It's not going to be audience participation. I'm not going to make you shout this out. But I want you to get a picture in your head of someone who you admire. Think of that individual, that man, that woman, that boy, that girl. Who is someone... Whether they're in your life, it's someone you directly know or someone that you kind of admire from afar. Who is someone that you admire? Now, it's kind of interesting. Like, yeah, I, no, I have no apologies about this. Like, I'm a total crackhead when it comes to social media. I know this. I, I spend way too much time on it, and I'm working on it. I'm trying to let God heal me of that addiction. Um, but if you ever actually to kind of grab my phone and go through my social media, you'd get a real sense of kind of the type of people I admire because of the way the algorithm works. <laughs> Right. So there's two groups of people on my social media now, like every post, every ad is one of two things. It's either art. OK, so it's either like painting little tiny war soldiers. And so I've got all these artists and I look at their paintings and I go, oh, my goodness. And I put my painting against their painting. and I suck. Why do I do this? Why should I? Why do I waste money on this hobby? I'm terrible at this. Oh, my goodness. God, kill me. OK, it's not that bad. But you know how it goes sometimes. And because you see this other person that you admire. It's like, I'm not like them. I can never achieve that. I'll never be as good as them. So it's either art for me or it's people who do push-ups and chin-ups. Like, I don't know when I became that guy. Like, I'm not a sports guy. I, I don't care about sports. I hate hockey. I watch football once a year for the Super Bowl commercials. That's the only reason I sit down and watch sports. Okay? But now it's all about how many push-ups is that guy doing? How many chin-ups can that lady do? And I go, well, I did, I did four push-ups. And this guy did 94. Oh, goodness, I'm, I stink. I'm no good. I'm terrible. I'll never amount to anything. See, there's something weird about the relationship of the people that we admire. We admire what they're capable of, and then yet, at the same time, we beat ourselves up because we can't do what they do. Am I the only one, or does this happen to you too? you got to show hands. If, this, if you've ever felt that way, you look at someone, you admire them, and, and you just feel like you don't measure up. Well, here's some good news today. That's what we're going to talk about here as we continue this sermon series in the book of Romans. We're going to talk about an example of faith. Because the Apostle Paul is writing to this church in the city of Rome where a lot of people come from a Jewish background. 
and the Jewish background, they have their examples of the faith. They put certain men and women on this religious pedestal. Like they're just like the ultimate greatest examples of faith in God. And one of the greatest people that the people of Israel admired was Abraham. Okay? And Jewish teachers, they, they put together, so they, they had the Old Testament, they had the Pentateuch, the five first books of the Bible, but the Jewish leaders also put something together called the Mishnah. And what the Mishnah is, it's the Old Testament, the law and the prophets, the books of wisdom, but it's also their traditions, their oral traditions, kind of the, the rules and the regulations that the, that the Jewish religious people put in place for the people of Israel. And what these religious Jewish teachers taught is that Abraham was faithful to God because he actually kept all of the rules and the laws and the traditions of God. Now that, you kind of go, but wait a minute, even someone with a basic understanding of the Bible would go, Abraham was born here, and then there was a whole lot of people, and then there was Moses, and then there was the law. There's actually a 385-year gap from the time when Abraham was declared righteous before God and when Moses got the law. And what these Jewish people were teaching was, no, 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 the reason why Abraham was righteous was because even though he didn't have the law, he kept it. Even though he didn't have the religious tradition yet, he followed it. That's why he's righteous. And so the Jewish people who greatly admire Abraham studied Abraham so that they can behave like Abraham because we all want to be righteous before God. And so if righteousness comes from behavior, we look to the men and the women and the boys and the girls that we admire and then we try to behave like them. In Western Christianity, we still do this. We actually do this a lot. We don't do it anymore, but we actually sat down as leaders several years ago when it comes to kids' ministry and youth ministry and even adult ministry, and I go, are we actually just trying to change people's behaviors? Right? Are we trying to tell little kids, be like Abraham, be like King David, be like, insert the name in the blank, be like Paul. Be like Jesus. So much of religion, so much of the Christian faith has been about behavior modification. And we wonder why it's lacking. We wonder why it doesn't work. We wonder why our kids walk away. We wonder why teenagers, millennials, have left the church by the tens of thousands in Canada. Maybe because we were focused on their behavior. And so what we're going to look at from Romans chapter 4 is that Paul was a directly addressing this. He goes into some kind of big theological ideas here. But the goal that he's really trying to go home in here is we got to stop worrying about the behavior. And we got to focus on the belief because as we've been saying throughout this series, what you believe about God, what you believe about sin, what you believe about humanity, what you believe about the power of the Holy Spirit and all of those things, your belief changes behavior. So we've got to focus on what we believe. All right, and so this is why, so this is what we're going to read here from Romans chapter 4. Now, just a quick recap before I read Romans chapter 4, where we've been talk, where we've been, where we've gone in this series so far. We started this in the first week, and we talked about the, the big idea that the gospel changes everything in us and around us. Again, this is this whole notion that, you know, again, it's not about behavior modification. It's about letting the Spirit of God actually change us from the inside out. What you believe about the good news of Jesus should change your life. 
If it's making you crabbier and crustier, there's a problem with your belief. Because we don't read, there's no spiritual gift of crusty in the Bible. You know, there's no spiritual gift of I'm going to be that, I'm going to be that person in my church that just complains about everything and everybody. And as soon as the pastor gets off the stage, I'm going to be the first person to tell him everything that he said wrong because, my goodness, that was a horrible sermon today. And it's my duty to correct everybody in the church. You see, there's no spiritual gift for that. Okay, we've got to be very, very mindful when we suddenly see us becoming very angry, crusty people. Our theology may be broken, right, because the gospel changes everything in us. And then it changes the relationships around us. We saw in the second week that when we focus on religion, right, when we think it's our behavior that's going to please God, the rules, the regulations, the traditions of religion, religion actually keeps us stuck in bad news. Because of the sin of humanity, there is no religion on the planet that can save us from our sin. Because there's always someone who's doing a little bit better. And that person still falls short of the glory of God. And when we strive and strive and strive just to perform, we're actually still trapped in bad news. Because what we saw last week is that the good news of Jesus, how we can truly be saved from our sin, how we can truly be made right with God, how we can truly be made right with one another, doesn't come from behavior modification. It comes from receiving a new heart. And that's good news. That's for everybody. So that's where we've gone. So I want to read here in Romans chapter 4. I'm going to read this. It's a bit of a long chapter. I do want to kind of go through the whole chapter. I'm going to pause from time to time to kind of explain it because it's, it's one of those chapters where it's easy to get lost in what Paul is talking about. Like Paul is the king of run-on sentences. Uh, it's, no, it's because Greek works that way and English doesn't. That's the problem. It works really well in the Greek language that he wrote it in, and then we try to translate it into English, and we have commas and semicolons and <laughs> dashes to try to really build on this. So we read it in English. We're like, well, what, does, what is he saying? He's all over the place. He's like Pastor Kevin going down all these rabbit trails. No, it's because it was in Greek, and we're trying to get the heart behind the text. So I'm going to read it. I'm going to pause occasionally, and then we'll explore this and what this means to the people of God back in Rome, particularly the Jewish people who greatly admired Abraham. What does that mean for us as a church who we have some spiritual people in our lives who we greatly admire? What does it mean in those relationships? And then what does it mean for us as people of God? Maybe God actually wants to use you as someone that someone else will admire because of their, your faith, and they will admire the faith that you have in God in you. So let's explore that. So Romans chapter 4, if you have a Bible, uh, you can follow along. It says this, uh, What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh, discovered in this matter? What's the matter? Is this whole how are people saved? Is it keeping the law and not keeping the law? Is it just for Jewish people? Are Gentiles allowed to come to this? So he brings it right back to the father of their faith. This division that's happening in the church of who is Jesus for? Is Jesus just for Jewish people, just for church people, or is it truly for everybody? He brings it back to Abraham. Why? Because Abraham is someone they greatly admire. Because again, they're being taught he kept all the law. They kept all the traditions. That's why we admire him. Right? And so he goes on. He says this, if, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, as he's saying, so if this is true, that he was justified before God the way you're teaching, well, then he has something to boast about. And we talked about that last week and the week before. That's what religion does. It makes us boast. Thank you, Lord, for not making me like that sinner over there. Thank you, God, that I obey, that I follow, that I'm obedient. <laughs> right? And so it gives Abraham something to boast about, but not before God. We talk about boasting only in God. So what does Scripture say? He's bringing the church, bringing these Jewish people back to their Scriptures. And says this, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. It didn't say Abraham behaved before God. And kept 
all of the Mishnah and then was made righteous. It says Abraham believed God. And then it continues verse 4. Now to the one who works. Wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. Here's one of these challenges that we have in the modern Western church today. That we go, if I behave a certain way, God must. If I give a certain amount of money to charity or to the church because I've sowed, now it's my time to reap. God must give me a Lamborghini. Okay, I'm still driving a 2013 Dodge Caravan. Okay, the Lamborghini hasn't come yet because it's not how that works. Okay, when we think that if I do something, then God has to pay me, then it's not a gift, it's an obligation. God must reward my behavior, right? However, to the one who does not work but trust God who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness, right? David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the one to whom God credited righteousness apart from works. So again, he's making this contrast. Is it behavior or is it belief? Is it behavior or is it belief? And he quotes one of the Psalms. He quotes Psalm 32. And he said, blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered, Blessed is the one whose sin in the Lord will never count against them. It's about belief. And it continues, verse 9 says, Is this blessedness only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? This is the distinctive between Jewish people, non-Jewish people. People of Israel, Greeks, Romans, any, any other country. Because the Jewish people are like, we're circumcised. That's what makes us clean before God, our traditions, our laws, our regulations. So it continues. So we have been saying Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstances was it credited? So if they're teaching, the religious leaders are teaching that Abraham kept all of the Mishnah, and that's what made him righteous, Here's the uncomfortable question. I love talking about circumcision on Sunday morning because it's just such a fun topic to talk about. Okay? Was Abraham circumcised or uncircumcised when he was declared righteous? Uncircumcised. He broke the Mishnah. Right? Like, it's like, it's so simple. So how do we get stuck in these religious traditions that say you have to obey, 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 obey in order to be righteous before God? And we use this one person as the example who obeyed and was declared righteous in disobedience. It breaks down so simply, but boy, we love to hold on to that kind of teaching because we really want our kids to behave. And we really want the people around us who don't believe like we do to behave like we do. And so we hold this really, really, really tightly. And then we go around smacking people with this belief. I'm not left-handed. I'm right-handed. Okay, You can hurt more with that arm. Okay, It breaks down. So it goes, see, and Paul continues, it was not after, but it was before! Exclamation point. And he received circumcision as a sign. It's, it's an outward thing of what God did inside. It's a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So then he is the father of all who believe but have not been circumcised in order that righteousness might be credited to them. Again, righteousness is credited to us by belief, not behavior. And then he is then also the father of the of the circumcised who not only are circumcised, but who also follow in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Okay, let's continue here. Verse 13 said, it was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be the heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. See, God promised Abraham that you were going to be this incredible nation. And we have what's known theologically as the Abrahamic covenant. It's this deal between God and Abraham. That's that covenant. 
and that I'm going to bless you. I'm going to go before you. I'm going to make you this great nation. That's your blessing. And then how God receives blessing in that is then the whole world is going to be blessed by you. Now, Abraham has nothing at this point in his life that would prove to him that he is going to be a great nation. He has no land and no descendants, no children. The two things that you need to be a great nation is land. If you have no land, how do you become a nation? If you have no children, how do you have this huge family? He has nothing, humanly speaking, to um, trust God. But he believes him. He believes him. He totally follows that God's promise is actually going to happen. Okay, so let's, I'm going to jump down here to verse 18. It says, against all hope, Abraham in hope believed. And he became the father of many nations, just as it had been said to him. So shall your offspring be. Those were the words of God. So your offspring will be. And without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead. In other words, he was his old guy. His wife was barren. His wife was an old lady. She shouldn't be able to have children at their age. Can you imagine being like 90 years old or 100 years old and having your first baby at 100? I'm 52. The idea of having a baby right now is the most psychotic thing I could ever think of. It's like, I have some friends of mine who are like, you know, like because of life and circumstances and things like that have, you know, had second families as they've gotten older. I have a friend of mine, he's like late 40s and he's got like a newborn. I'm like, oh, dude, that sounds exhausting. Can't even imagine at 48 years old, 52 years old, getting up in the middle of the night trying to find the thick bottle in that thing that's screaming all night long would kill me if it was capable of it to get food. Now imagine being a hundred, living in a desert. He never wavered in his belief. Never wavered in his belief that God would do something in that. That's why he's credited as righteous. Because even in the thing that looks absolutely ridiculous, even in the thing that looks absolutely impossible, even in the thing that looks like, I don't even know if I actually want this. God is faithful. God's blessings come. And he believed. Okay. Verse 22. <clears throat> this is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words it was credited to him were written not for him alone, but also for us to whom God will credit righteousness for us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death and for our sins. For, so he was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. So Paul uses this example of someone who is greatly, greatly admired by the people of Israel. And they were admiring the behavior. And Paul, through this chapter, breaks all the traditions down and shows them where they're lacking. Where your tradition actually doesn't make any sense. Because it's actually not what your Bible teaches. It's not what our traditions actually teach. How did we deviate from that? Oh, well, we deviate because there's a spiritual enemy that loves it when the people of God are distracted by things that don't matter. You see, right from the very beginning in the Garden of Eden, <laughs> there's this serpent. And he goes to Adam and Eve and he says, there's this fruit in the middle of the garden that they're not allowed to eat. And the serpent says, you know, you know, if you eat that, you're not going to die. <laughs> You're going to be like God. And so they ate it, even though God said not to eat it. Now, here's what's crazy about that sin. We, I believe that Adam and Eve were created in the image and likeness of God. 
they were already like God. Satan made them sin and do something that they already were. They were already like God. And Satan comes in and confuses them. That's why we as Christians need a season to regroup and to refocus and to relaunch. Because we get confused. I get confused. Right? The Jewish people got confused. The Church of Rome got confused. And we go down rabbit trails and our spiritual enemy loves when the church goes down rabbit trails to get us focused on our behavior more than our belief. So three things that I want to unpack just for the remainder of our time together. And I'm going to use kind of these three kind of theological words because he finishes this section here in chapter four with the word justification. I want to talk about three theological ideas that we can see from this text. Because again, our theology helps us in our methodology. Our theology, what we view about God, changes our behavior. So there's these three big terms that we use a lot as Christians. We say justification, regeneration, and sanctification. If you don't know what those mean yet, I'm going to explain them. Okay? But we're going to talk about justification, regeneration, sanctification. And normally this is like a 12-month theology class that I'm going to try to get done in about 13 minutes. We'll see how that goes. Okay, so the first thing that we understand about justification, okay, justification means, this is the, the official definition of justified, justification. It refers to the state of being, uh, sorry, refers to the state of being vindicated or acquitted, Right? In Christian theology, it describes the act or the state of being made right with God. Right? Because if God is truly holy, and humanity, because of the deception of the evil one, we have allowed sin and death into the world, there's this gap, there's this separation, and no religion, no tradition can bridge that gap. And so that's where Jesus died for our sins, And as Paul teaches here in Romans chapter 4, God justifies us. We are acquitted. The penalty that we are supposed to receive, we don't receive it. We are declared innocent. We're not punished. That means justified before God. Now here's the real important thing from this text that I think we have to remember. Is God justifies the ungodly. See, that's who God is. God is a God who justifies the ungodly. We've talked about this already in this series, that again, in this deception that we believe, because I'm not as good as the person I admire. I remember years ago when I was a brand new Christian, I went on a men's conference And um, they had this guest speaker at this men's conference that I was at, and he was an older gentleman, and he was talking about, and I had little kids at the time, the kids were like under 10, they were little, and at this conference, this speaker was talking about how every day, every day he's up at 4.30 in the morning, and for two hours he meditates on the Word of God, and he he prays. I'm like, I don't do that. Two hours a day? I don't do that. And then he started talking about how every single day after school, his kids were teenagers at the time, and every day after school, all these teenagers used to come to his house, and he used to lead them in Bible studies every day of the week. And I'm like, oh, I suck. I'm happy when I put Samantha's shoes on the right feet. You know, I got the left and the right sorted out, and I get her to Sunday school. I remember, you know, it's just like I, I can barely keep it together some days as a parent. And here's this one parent doing two hours of Bible study on his own every day and leading teenagers to Christ every single day of the week. I stopped going to men's conferences for years. Honestly, for years. Because men's ministry was terrible at making men feel bad about themselves. I don't need a ministry to tell me to feel bad about myself. I already feel bad about myself. I already know my behavior is no good. Help me in my unbelief. <laughs> right? God is a God who justifies the ungodly. He doesn't justify people because of their behavior. 
Right? Look at, again, this is what Paul says here in, in uh, verse 5 of chapter 4. It says, however, to the one who does not work but trusts God who justifies the ungodly. Some translations actually say the wicked. That God justifies the wicked. Too often we believe this lie that I need to be like that guy at that men's conference for God to love me. And that's why I hear so often Christians saying, well, when I clean up my life, then I'll get baptized. When I clean up my life, then I'll start volunteering at the church. When I clean up my life, I'll become a member. When I, when I, when I. And I want you to be set free in Jesus' name. You're never going to get there. And you're actually being a little bit disobedient to the things that God wants to put into your life to help you be transformed so that you get a little closer to being there. But somehow we got twisted in our belief, thinking I need to be righteous first before God will justify. One of my favorite Bible stories really drives this point home. And we can read about this in Luke chapter 23, when Jesus is crucified And there's a criminal on either side of him. And one criminal is mocking Jesus. Because if you're truly God, get us off of this cross. Prove it right now. Right now, Jesus, prove who you are. You could stop this and you could save me at the same time. Purely selfish motives. It's all about, God, what can I get from you? And then the other criminal rebukes that criminal. He says, don't you fear God? Since you are under the same sentence, we are punished justly. Our sin deserves death. And God is justified in punishing sin. And it says here, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man, Jesus, has done nothing wrong. He's the only human being, fully God, fully man, without any sin. (laughs) And yet he pays the price for sin. And then this thief looks to Jesus and says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says, truly, I tell you, today, you'll be with me in paradise. There's no time for the thief to obey the Mishnah. There's no time for the thief to clean up his life. There's no time for the thief to get his affairs in order and tithe 10% of his income to the temple and to make sure that he takes the newcomer's class at the church and make sure that he does all of these things that we do. But he is fully justified before God. How does that belief change you? That God wants to justify the wicked. Because we live in a very wicked world. We live in a very ungodly world. I talk about this all the time with Christian leaders. I talk about this all the time with pastors here and elders here. You know, that Canada is no longer a post-Christian nation. It's not. We're long past that. We're pagan. Christian Canada's a pagan nation where other beliefs and other worship of gods is way more accepted than Jesus. We're, we're a pagan nation. So does that make you just want to huddle and hide in your basement, sing Kumbaya, have some Baptist potlucks? Or does it actually spur you on? Like, you know what? God actually wants to justify the wicked. God actually wants to justify the godly, the ungodly. The mission of God's not changed at all. See, so this one reality, this truth that Paul is trying to drive so deeply into the heart of this church in Rome, that's not about the behavior that we see in people, but it's about helping them in their unbelief. Right? It should change how the church views people. It should change how we even view our enemies. Because they're not the enemy. They're the prize. <laughs> so that's the first thing, that God justifies the ungodly. Second thing is that we see that God regenerates us as people. See, the doctrine of regeneration, it means so when God justifies us, that we're made 
we are acquitted of our sin. We are justified before holy God. Then we read that God brings this person new life. That's where we get the expression born again. Right, when Jesus taught this in John chapter 3, this is why he was telling this religious leader, Nicodemus, that it's not about your behavior. You need to be born anew, born of the Spirit, born again, depending on your translation. And this old Jewish leader goes, "Make that makes no sense. How can I be born again? I've already been born. And he says, no, no, it's not this physical thing. It's not the outward behavior. It's this inward thing. Right, Because the, the Bible teaches that when we are born because of this sinful nature that you and I have all inherited from our father and mother, Adam and Eve, and all of us, there's going to be a big line in heaven to talk to Adam and Eve. I'm sure of it. It's going to be the longest line in heaven because everyone's going to want a piece of them. Of Why my life was so miserable because of their sin and I would have been perfect. If you would have been in the garden, you would have done the exact same thing. Are we allowed to say that? I would have done the exact same thing, okay, because it was in all of us, okay? So maybe the lineup in heaven to talk to Adam and Eve should just be a big hug fest, right? But so when God justified us, we inherit Adam's sin, we have our own sin, but this regeneration is this idea that the old is gone and the new has come, that this dead heart that we're born with spiritually is taken out and is replaced with a new heart. That's why it's not about change the behavior. It's you have already been changed. <laughs> we just now have to figure out what life looks like now that we've been regenerated. Right? And the beauty of how Paul is teaching this concept of regeneration here in this text. It's subtle, but it's there. He says, when you have been changed from here, when you are new here, a new creation here, you've been born again here, this change here changes all of the relationships out here. That's how it's evident. The change in here is expressed in how we treat each other. Right? It says here in Romans uh, 4, verse 18, it says, Against all hope, Abraham, in hope, believed. Remember, he didn't have any land. He didn't have any descendants. He had nothing, humanly speaking, that had any evidence that God was going to be able to do what God promised. And yet he believed. And then he actually became the father of many nations, just as God said and by becoming the father of many nations, Abraham's belief breaks down everything that the world tries to build up. And I don't know if it's just me, but it feels like more and more and more people are trying to raise up more walls, more reasons to not trust each other, more reasons to be suspicious of each other, more reasons to not like certain countries and certain people and certain colors and certain beliefs and all of these things. Because our spiritual enemy loves us divided. And when you are regenerated, you didn't just become new in here, but you and I became new. We became one nation. No matter what country we're from, no matter what country we were born in. That's why I always say unapologetically, I should be able to pluck you from this church and plop you into any church on the planet and it should not change your ability to worship God that Sunday morning. Even if you don't like the music and like the sermon and like, for as long as it's the biblical church, you should be able to worship there with your brothers and sisters because we have been regenerated. Right? We're going to learn more about this concept of regeneration in Romans chapter 8. Right? When Paul writes, he says, The spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. This is this one nation. It's a new humanity. It's a new concept of how we treat one another. And so when the world behaves one way, when it comes to people who are different, how do we respond? How does being regenerated change your view about yourself? 
Are you still just so worried about your behavior? I got to behave. I got to behave. I got to behave. And then maybe God will bless or maybe God will love me or maybe my church will accept me or maybe my all these things that we wrestle with. You're already regenerated if you've put your faith in Jesus. You are already a new creation. That is good news. You're not some sinner that God hates. You are his daughter. You are his son. With whom he is well pleased because of your belief. That should change our view about ourselves. It should change the view of the church. It should change the view of people outside of the church on how we can be regenerated together as people of God. So God regenerates us as people. God justifies the ungodly. And then the last point here, I'll finish off with this, is God sanctifies us through faith. Sanctification is the theological term of being changed. That when you accept Jesus as Lord and Savior, when you understand about this concept of sin and how this has kept you separated from God, when you turn from that sin and you turn to Jesus, whether that's a simple little prayer, Father, forgive me, a sinner, (laughs) come into my life, make me new, if you pray like that, if it's a longer thing, if it's a time of worship, however God speaks to you, when you became justified, you instantly became regenerated at that time, And then you go on the journey of being sanctified. The word sanctified literally means to set apart for a specific purpose. I think where the spiritual enemy gets us distracted as Christians is we focus on our purpose, my plan, my desires, my wants. But Kevin died. See, the old is dead. See, when Kevin Presso was on a train like 20 years ago and was reading a Bible to disprove the existence of God, instead of me and my human wisdom of seeing how smart I was and disproving God, I went, oh my goodness, I'm a sinner. And I accepted God instead. Didn't go the way I planned. And then I was justified. And I was regenerated. And a new creation walked off that train. On that train in Montreal, Kevin Presso died. And a new creation came off of it. And I went on a journey going, well, now, God, what is your plan? What are your desires? What do you want? And Jesus teaches this, that when you actually put the kingdom of God first, all the other things that we stress out about and worry about, and get angry about, and have to fight for. All those blessings, they come. We've got to put it all in the right order. So we go on this journey of being set apart for a specific purpose. That's what it means to be sanctified. So we're on this journey of being sanctified. It's the, in the journey of being set apart, we learn, we stumble, we grow, we mess up, we forgive, we repent, we seek forgiveness. All these things that the New Testament teaches us, not to change our behavior, but to help us live out the regenerated heart we already have. And it, sometimes it takes practice to do that. Like here in Romans chapter 4, verses 20 to 21, this is how it says. It says, yet he, being Abraham, he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promises of God, but he was strengthened in his faith. Every opposition that Abraham faced, it didn't beat him down. It strengthened his faith. And then as his faith was built up, as it continues in verse 20, and gave glory to God. See, that's what the journey of sanctification does. It's not about getting what you want, getting what you think you deserve, trying to just get your plans to become a reality. It's seeking God. What is your plan for my career? What is your plan for my education? What's your plan for my relationships? What's your plan with my neighbors? What is your plan, God? And trusting God in that because it will actually strengthen your faith. And it will bring more glory to God. 
And then it continues here in verse 21 of chapter 4 of Romans. It says, and being fully persuaded that God has the power to do what he's promised. (laughs) What did he promise? I'm not going to abandon you or forsake you. I'm not leaving you to do this alone. I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. I'm going to send my spirit to dwell among you. You will have power. You will be given words to speak. You'll be given spiritual gifts to bless one another. Like there's so many promises (laughs) that God gives us as his children. (laughs) And we get distracted (laughs) from the journey. That's not about our behavior. It's about our faith. And so that's the big idea of Romans chapter 4. Is that ever since the beginning of the faith journey of Abraham, it has always been about faith. It has always been about what we believe. Not how we behave. And so when you think of the people who spiritually you admire. What do you admire about them? Maybe there's someone in your life group that you admire. Maybe it's a fusion leader. Maybe it's a kid's own leader. Maybe it's a pastor online, someone or author that you read. Who do you admire about their faith? And don't look at their behavior. Look at their belief. How did they get there? To believe like they believe. I was actually reflecting on that men's retreat I went on. What made that guy sacrifice every afternoon to just do Bible study with teenagers, his kids and his kids' friends? Because this man had such a heart for teenagers. He was an abused teenager growing up. He grew up in an alcoholic home where he was beaten to a pulp by his father. And so he had such a compassion for teenagers that he had to do it. And when you look at how does someone believe this instead of what they're doing, it's like, oh, there's so much freedom in that. (laughs) I don't have to behave like that guy. God's not mad at me because I didn't do Bible study in my home every night with my teenage kids. I did something else. That strengthened my faith and brought God glory. And the same is true for you. The same is true for you. How does this change your life? How does this change what you believe? That God wants to justify the ungodly. That God regenerates us. That you are new. Even if you don't always feel like it. And that God sanctifies us not through our behavior, but through our faith. Because I actually believe that we are in a season, as we regroup and as we refocus and as we relaunch, that God wants you to be that kind of person. I know this is going to sound like a lot of pressure, but it's not. There's great freedom in this. God's going to use you as an example of faith. At school, at work, in your family, in your neighborhood, in your community. And people are going to look at you and they're going to try to figure out your behavior. Why does this person behave differently? And my hope and my prayer for all of us that we be men, women, boys and girls that aren't so obsessed on the behavior, but that people will actually see our belief. That what sets us apart is not how we behave, but what sets us apart is this surrendered faith in Jesus. Because that is what matters. And that is what changes us. And it's that that changes the world. So let's pray. Father God, as we are in this season of going through this letter to the most sophisticated city in human history at that time, we can look at this and go, ah, that was for them. But your word is still for us today. That your word changes us, transforms us by the power of your spirit. And it sometimes convicts us, it sometimes challenges us. And so, God, I pray that even today that you would bring peace 
to those who might be wrestling, that you would bring comfort into all of our lives. And God, I pray that you would use even this text from Romans chapter 4, because there are so many great people of the faith that we can admire, and we could think we never measure up, that I could never be as good as this person. I could never be used by you, God, like you use this person. And God, I pray that you would set us free from that lie, that our spiritual enemy who's been holding us in this lie for so long that we're just not good enough, set us free. Father, for the lies that believe that we have to perform, that I have got to prove to people that Jesus is real by my performance. God, I pray that today you would set us free. And Father God, I I pray today that you would strengthen our faith because you justified us. Those of us who have put our faith in Jesus to forgive us our sin, we were justified in our wickedness in our ungodliness. And Father, I pray even this morning, maybe someone is kind of feeling that tug on their heart that you're speaking to them to welcome them into your family. I pray that even today, online, here in person, they would just pray, Father, forgive me, a sinner. Come into my life. If you pray that today for the first time, come and tell me in the cafe afterwards, church online, put that in the chat that you've just come to Jesus today. And for the rest of us who were justified, whether just now or decades ago, God has made you new. Stop beating yourself up. Now we're all on the journey, absolutely. We're all being set apart. We are all receiving freedom from sin, and it's all a journey. But let's love each other well in the journey. Let's correct each other. Let's spur each other on. Let's bless one another. And let's just trust in this process that God has us on as a family, as we regroup, refocus, relaunch, that it would happen in each and every one of us, that it would build up our faith in Jesus, it would bring more glory to Jesus, and we would see more people changed by the love of Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.